Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently studying the book of the prophet Jeremiah. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA, along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. Turn to Jeremiah 4. In the first three chapters of Jeremiah so far, we have seen God laying out his case against Judah, showing how remarkably guilty they are, using some shockingly graphic language to describe their faithlessness. He compares them to an erring wife who has turned to harlotry, and so he has adequately defended his right to judge them, given that they have refused to turn or to change or to repent. Now, the last part of chapter 3 included words like verse 12, go and proclaim these words toward the north and say, return faithless Israel, declares the Lord, and I will not look upon you in anger, for I am gracious, declares the Lord. And I will not be angry with you forever, only acknowledge your iniquity that you have transgressed against the Lord your God and have scattered your favors to the strangers under every green tree. And you have not obeyed my voice, declares the Lord. Return, O faithless sons, for I am a master to you and I will take you one from a city and two from a family. And we looked at that last week and it was God's declaration to Israel who even though he had scattered them in the Assyrian captivity, nevertheless, because he's gracious, he held out the promise that if they returned, he would be gracious to them. Well, now in chapter four, he's going to say the same thing to Judah. He's going to say, return, and if you return, don't return to any of your other gods. Return to me. If you repent, repent to me. And then he's going to tell them exactly what is going to happen, and he is going to predict the Babylonian captivity. Now, this is a really interesting moment. You know that when I'm looking at the Bible, I'm always looking for internal indications of the truth and validity of the Bible. Well, here is one of those moments where we can test the Bible because this particular prophecy is during the time of Josiah. He has already named King Josiah, which means since Josiah ruled from 640 B.C. to about 609 B.C., we know that this prophecy happened during that time period. This prophecy is a prophecy of Judah going into Babylon and the destruction of the temple and Jerusalem. Now, we know for a fact that that all occurred. We know historically that Jerusalem, Judah, did end up in the Babylonian captivity. And we know that Babylon was responsible. Nebuchadnezzar was responsible for the destruction of the temple. That's all 
secular history. We don't even have to have the Bible to know that that happened because it actually occurred in the Middle East. But the prophecy that it's going to occur happened somewhere between 640 and 610 BC. But the actual event of the Babylonian captivity takes place in 586 BC, which means that the prophecy was put in place what is that, 25 years before it actually occurred? Now, to me, that is an internal indication, once again, of the fact that there is a sovereign God behind this word, a sovereign God who is in control of history, who not only predicts the future, but who declares the future, and then by his sovereign almighty hand, makes sure that the future that he has declared actually comes true. And we don't have to take anything on faith. All we have to do is look at when this prophecy was put forward, and then look at human history. And it actually occurred, just like God said. And it occurred in Jeremiah's lifetime, and as we've told you before, the later prophecies of Jeremiah occurred during the Babylonian captivity. So in Jeremiah's own lifetime, it occurred, but it is just so very helpful that he tells us that this prophecy happened during the time of Josiah the king. That puts a date stamp on it, and we know historically when Nebuchadnezzar conquered Jerusalem. In other words, the Bible yet again proves itself I keep saying that the Bible is the uh, best subject matter expert on itself. And here is another opportunity to compare the Bible to human history and see that the Bible is true and the Bible is accurate. Now let's also take a little theological side road here. And there is a statement in Romans. Turn to the book of Romans. Keep your finger there in Jeremiah. But turn to Romans for just a minute, Romans 2. There is a statement made in Romans 2, 28, that says, For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, neither is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. Now, that verse, taken out of context, has been bandied about wildly by theologians through the years who have attempted to say that that verse proves that God is done with Israel and that everybody who has had this inward change, this circumcision inwardly rather than outwardly, that all of those people are now spiritual Jews. Because verse 29 says, he is not a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter, and his praise is not from men, but from God. And so everybody, they say, who has had this spiritual circumcision of their heart is thereby now a spiritual Jew, evidence that God is done with Israel physically, and that all references to Israel in the New Testament are a reference to the church. However... Look at verse 17 of this same passage, Romans 2, 17, and Paul will identify the audience that he is particularly writing to at this moment. He is talking specifically to the Jews, the very ones who do have the physical circumcision. And he says, but if you bear the name Jew 
and rely upon the law and boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are essential, being instructed out of the law and are confident that you yourselves are a guide to the blind, a light to those in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having in the law the embodiment of the knowledge and truth. You, therefore, who teach another, do you not teach yourself? So he started right out by saying, but if you bear the name Jew and rely on the law. So that is the audience that he is speaking to when he says, for he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, neither is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter of the law. Now, why did we go here to Romans 2? Because Paul did not just invent that. Paul did not just come up with that. And far too often, modern theologians who spend all their time in the New Testament and don't understand the Old Testament background and theology that Paul was working from don't know Jeremiah 4, where God specifically speaking to Jews who do have the circumcision, who are under the law, God says to them, this is verse 3 of Jeremiah 4, for thus says the Lord, to the men of Judah and Jerusalem, break up your fallow ground and do not sow among thorns. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord and remove the foreskins of your heart, men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. So God has already said to circumcise Jews of Judah and Jerusalem. He has already said there needs to be an inward change and you need to circumcise the foreskin of your heart because your hearts are hard against me. All Paul was doing in Romans 8.28 is validating what Jeremiah has already laid out. God has already said to the Jews, circumcise your heart. Paul, within the context of Christ, says to the Jews, circumcise your heart. There's no difference between the two of them. If you understand that, and if you understand that Paul was pulling right from theology that already existed in the Old Testament, then it's impossible to say that what Paul was getting at was that Jew is now a spiritual word and that Israel is now the church. You can't draw that from what Paul said, but the implication isn't even there because Paul said he was speaking to the Jews and he was speaking to the Jews the exact same way that God spoke to the Jews in Jeremiah 4. Got it? Mm -hmm. So that little theological aside out of the way, now let's start reading from Jeremiah 4. God begins by saying, return to me. And if you're going to repent, if you're going to return, come back to me. Don't go to any of your other gods. Come to me. If you will return, O Israel, declares Yahweh, then you should return to me. And if you will put away your detestable things from my presence and will not waver, and you will swear as the Lord lives, in truth, in justice, and in righteousness, then the nations will bless themselves in Yahweh, in him, and in him they will find glory. The same way that he held out 
the opportunity to repent and return to him to the northern tribes, Israel. He's just done the same thing to the southern tribes because God is endlessly gracious. Now, I want you to conjure up in your head what we've been reading for the last three weeks and see that Israel and Judah were, in fact, phenomenally guilty, really, really guilty. And yet here is God, by grace, yet again, saying, just turn to me, just come to me, just repent, don't waver. And if you do that, then all of the nations of the earth are going to be blessed through God as you again become the primary nation on earth. And you will swear, as the Lord lives, in truth, in justice, and in righteousness, that the nations, the Gentiles, the Goyim, will bless themselves in Yahweh, and in him they will glory. Okay, so that sounds very eschatological. That sounds like something God has already told us is going to happen. That's something that we learned in the book of Revelation is actually going to occur. And how is it going to occur? Is it going to occur because the Jews finally repent, turn to God, do truth and justice in righteousness, and swear as the Lord lives in sincerity? Is that how it's going to be accomplished? Well, no, because they never do actually turn back to him until, according to Zechariah, Jesus returns to the planet, his feet touch the Mount of Olives, they'll look on him whom they have pierced, weep as one weeps over their only child, and then they are going to turn in repentance because God is going to pour out the spirit of supplication and repentance on them. So it is God in his grace who says, you can still return to me, and it is God in his sovereignty who is going to cause that to happen. Pretty remarkable God. Verse 3. For thus says the Lord Yahweh to the men of Judah and Jerusalem. Break up your fallow ground, the ground that isn't producing fruit. Do not sow among thorns. In other words, sow in good soil so that you can produce fruit that doesn't get choked away by the thorns. And then change, circumcise yourselves to the Lord and remove the foreskin of your heart, men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my wrath go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it. Peter tells us that God's going to do that that ultimately he's going to bring about that final conflagration, that he's going to burn everything that exists on this planet and start again, new heavens, new earth, new Jerusalem. He's going to make all things new. Here he is saying specifically to the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem that they need to change and they need to change inwardly. Notice that the change that he expects from them is not do the law better, be more fleshly. Instead, he's saying the same thing that Paul is arguing that we've been reading Sunday morning to the Galatians. He is saying, you need to be changed from within, and then proves the impossibility of that actually happening, and says, circumcise the foreskin of your heart. How? How do you do that? Well, then you get to the New Testament, and Paul writes that that is now possible in Christ. 
that by the Spirit of God taking up habitation in you, that it will change you from within. It'll take out your stony heart, give you that heart of flesh, give you the repentance and faith that is necessary. So the command from God here is circumcise yourselves to the Lord and remove the foreskins of your heart. They can't do it, so God ends up doing it through Jesus Christ. Yet again, here's a directive from God that you can't do that God in his grace ends up doing Kind of remarkable. And all of these promises so far, these directives, these imperatives, and the attendant promises of grace from God, all belong to Israel and Judah here. So then you have to ask yourself, do those promises still exist for Israel and Judah? Or if they don't, did God change his mind? And if God changed his mind then you can't trust him. He is capricious. He might decide to just give up on you too because he would have a history of giving up on people who he chose and loved. But notice what God does say to them. My wrath will go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. Verse 5, declare in Judah and proclaim in Jerusalem and say, blow the trumpet in the land. That means gather everybody. The reveille trumpet, let them know that it's time to gather. Blow the trumpet in the land. Cry aloud and say, assemble yourselves and let us go, apparently, to hide in the fortified cities. Okay, so why would you tell all the inhabitants of Judah to come within the walls and to hide in the fortified cities? And why would you, verse 6, lift up a standard toward Zion, lift up a flag to gather your people? Seek refuge and don't stand still. Don't remain where you are. Instead, seek refuge immediately. Come inside the walls. Come into the the fortified cities. For I am bringing evil from the north. And I am bringing great destruction. A lion has gone up from his thicket. And a destroyer out of the nations has set out. He has gone out from his place to make your land a waste. Your cities will be ruins without inhabitant. Has that happened? Yeah. It happened during the Babylonian captivity. And interesting that he continues to refer to Nebuchadnezzar as a lion, because that was the emblem that Nebuchadnezzar used over and over. And so God says, gather the people, blow the trumpet, raise the standard, everybody get inside the walls, Because I'm about to bring a great destruction. Notice also, since we spent so much time talking about theodicy, notice that this great destruction is coming from the Lord. And God even says so. He didn't say, I'm the one who's bringing all the good stuff, but when bad stuff happens, that's the devil or that's some demon. He says, I'm responsible for it. I'm using Nebuchadnezzar and the Chaldeans to punish you. And then he describes him as a lion gone up from his hiding place, from his thicket. And he's a destroyer of the nations, which is true of Nebuchadnezzar. He did destroy all the surrounding nations until they became the primary kingdom there in the Middle East. He's gone out from his place to make your land specifically a waste. Your cities will be ruins 
and without inhabitant. For this, put on sackcloth, lament, and wail, for the fierce anger of the Lord has not turned back from us. After the book of Jeremiah, there's another book written by Jeremiah called <coughs> The Lament, The Lamentations wherein he's lamenting over the destruction of Jerusalem. And you're going to get a little foretaste of that in this very chapter. Because it is God himself who says, put on sackcloth, which is a sign of repentance. Lament, wail, cry, because the fierce anger of the Lord has not turned back from us. And it shall come about in that day, declares the Lord, that the heart of the king and the heart of the princes will fail. And the priests will be appalled and the prophets will be astounded. Why will the prophets be astounded? Because they've all been prophesying lies. Which is why Jeremiah out there predicting destruction for Jerusalem wasn't accepted. Because all the other prophets were saying, it's peace. It's all good. You're good with God. Don't worry. And they're all going to be astounded. And the priests who are attempting to reconcile the people to God, they are going to be completely appalled by what's going to happen. God, rather than paying attention to their sacrifices and their interventions, God is nevertheless going to bring fierce anger against them and destroy the city and make it without inhabitant. Verse 10, this is now Jeremiah speaking. Then I said, Ah, Lord God, surely thou hast utterly deceived this people and Jerusalem, saying, You will have peace, whereas a sword touches the throat. That word can also be touches the skin, the flesh. So here's Jeremiah crying and saying, You've sent prophets to Jerusalem, and they've been claiming peace and as a consequence, the people are all completely confused. The people have all been deceived by these prophets. And you, in your sovereignty, have brought that about. You're the one who is doing this. You have utterly deceived this people and deceived Jerusalem, saying you will have peace. Whereas a sword is right up against their throat. In that time... It will be said to this people and to Jerusalem, a scorching wind from the bare heights in the wilderness in the direction of the daughter of my people. Not a wind to winnow, like separating the wheat from the chaff. Not a wind to cleanse or blow away the dirt and the dust. A wind that is too strong for those things. That wind will come at my command. And now I will also pronounce judgments against them. So God is saying, I'm going to use the Chaldeans to punish you. They're going to come on you like a mighty scorching wind. And then I'm going to punish them for the way they punished you. Does that sound familiar? It's the same thing he did when dealing with the Assyrians. It's the same thing he did when dealing with the Egyptians. This is the God who defends his people and punishes his people. And they deserve to be punished. He's been laying out his case for three chapters that they deserve his wrath. 
verse 13. Behold, this is talking about Nebuchadnezzar and his armies. Behold, he goes up like clouds, and his chariots are like the whirlwind. His horses are swifter than eagles, and woe to us, for we are ruined. Wash your heart from evil, O Jerusalem, that you may be saved. How long will your wicked thoughts lodge within you? For a voice declares from Dan and proclaims wickedness from Mount Ephraim. In other words, those northern tribes that have already been taken into captivity are a demonstration to you. We saw this in the last couple of weeks. God holds Judah responsible for the fact that she saw what God did to the northern tribes, and yet they didn't change. And so he says, you're even more guilty because you've already seen me demonstrate my wrath against your brethren, and you didn't repent, and you didn't turn to me. And so the voice of all those northern tribes who have been taken into captivity declares from Dan and proclaims wickedness from Mount Ephraim. So report it to the nations now. Proclaim over Jerusalem. Besiegers come from a far country and lift their voices against the cities of Judah. Like watchmen of a field, they are against her roundabout. They're going to encircle her. They're going to take her captive because she has rebelled against me. So God leaves nothing to imagination. He says exactly why it is that he's going to do this to his people. He's going to do it to them because they have rebelled against him in the way that they have not kept his feasts and not kept his Sabbaths and chased after other gods and haven't performed his law, and therefore they are guilty, and God is going to bring their enemies round about them to encamp outside the walls, utterly destroy the city, and make it without person. So, like watchmen of a field, they are against her round about Because she has rebelled against me, declares Yahweh. Your ways and your deeds have brought these things to you. And this is your evil. How bitter. How it has touched your heart. You're just evil internally. That's why you need a circumcision of the heart. Because you are evil internally manifested in the fact that you have rebelled against me. Therefore, your own ways, your own actions, your own deeds have brought these things upon you. Okay, so now God's laid out his case. You're guilty, 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 and this is what I'm going to do to you. And I'm going to take you into captivity as a result. And then Jeremiah says, My soul... My soul, I am in anguish. Oh, my heart. My heart is pounding in me. I cannot be silent. Because you have heard, oh, my soul, the sound of the trumpet, the alarm of war. Disaster on disaster is proclaimed. For the whole land is devastated. And suddenly my tents are devastated My curtains in an instant. How long must I see the standard, apparently the flags of the enemies attacking? 
How long must I see the standard and hear the sound of the trumpet? For my people are foolish. They know me not. They are stupid children. I get in trouble because once in a while I say the word stupid from the pulpit. And people write to me and they say, well, that's not very godly. No, it's very godly. Because here God says, my people are foolish. They do not know me. They are stupid children. They have no understanding. And they are shrewd to do evil. But to do good, they don't know. They have no idea how to do good stuff. I looked on the earth. Now, starting at verse 23, and this section has been also bandied about on the internet a lot. There are people who postulate that what the next couple of verses is describing is a time before Adam and Eve where the earth was without form and void and where there was no man, but there were still creatures on the planet. And then they argue that Adam and Eve were told to replenish the earth because it had been plenished once and then apparently God wiped out everybody. Except that what we're going to see is that what God is claiming first is like an allegory describing what he's going to do. And then he's going to say in verse 27, for thus says the Lord, and he's going to describe it for us. So we have to go with God's interpretation, God's explanation of his own words, rather than making up silly theories that gain traction on the internet. Verse 23, I looked on the earth, and behold, it was formless and void. And to the heavens... And they had no light. I looked on the mountains, and behold, they were quaking, and all the hills moved to and fro. I looked, and behold, there was no man, and all the birds of the heavens had fled. I looked, and behold, the fruitful land was a wilderness, and all its cities were pulled down before the Lord, before his fierce anger. For thus says the Lord, The whole land shall be a desolation. And hold on to this phrase. What an interesting thing for God to say in the middle of all this judgmental language after holding them so very guilty, after demonstrating to them how they had rebelled against him time and time again. He says, and yet I will not execute a complete destruction. Isn't that interesting? Talk about astounding grace. Now, why in the midst of describing their phenomenal guilt, in describing their rebellion, in describing how they don't know how to do good, all they ever do is create evil. They're shrewd to do evil. After describing them with the kind of language that he has used to describe them, why in the world would he say, but I won't make a complete destruction of them? I will not execute a complete destruction. He's going to forgive. Because he's going to forgive. Why is he going to forgive? Isaiah tells us. Now remember that this is being written sometime about 640 B.C. to 609 B.C., sometime during Josiah. But Isaiah lived from 740 B.C. to about 700 B.C. So he's 50 years before Jeremiah, which means that Jeremiah is probably quite familiar with what Isaiah has already said about Israel and Judah. 
And here's what Isaiah does say about Israel and Judah. Isaiah 41, 8 and 9 says, But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, descendant of Abraham, my friend, you whom I have taken from the ends of the earth and called from its remotest parts and have said to you, you are my servant, I have chosen you, and I have not rejected you. Okay, so that prophecy was already in place 50 years before all of this occurred. Isaiah 43.10 says, You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servants whom I have chosen, so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed, and there will be none after me. Isaiah 44, the first two verses say, But now listen, O Jacob, my servant, and Israel, mine elect, thus says the Lord, who made you and formed you in the womb, who will help you. Do not fear, O Jacob, my servant, and you, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. Isaiah 45, 4 says, For the sake of Jacob, my servant, and Israel, my chosen one, that's the NASB, the King James is, for Israel, mine elect. I have also called you by your own name, and I have given you a title of honor, though you have not known me. Amos 3.2 says, you only have I chosen, speaking to Israel, you only have I chosen among all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. So that explains what's happening here in Jeremiah 4. God is not going to make a complete destruction of Judah. He's going to correct Judah. He's going to punish them. The same way that the writer of Hebrews says, whom the Lord loves, he chastens. Scourges every son he receives. He's going to correct us. He's going to correct our behavior and then dust us off, set us up again and say, okay, let's try this again. But he's not going to lose us. He's not going to ordain us to wrath. More importantly, he's not going to change his mind. How many times now from Isaiah and from Amos have we seen that God says, you're my chosen, you're my elect? Yeah, I'm going to punish you. Yes, I'm going to punish you for your iniquities. But what I'm not going to do is lose you here in Jeremiah. After laying out their phenomenal guilt, he says, but I will not execute a complete destruction. Now, I have contended for so many years that even I'm tired of hearing me say it. But a God who could say all that to Israel and then lose them, it's not the God you want, because that's the same God who said he won't lose you. And if he could lose Israel, he can lose you. If he can change his mind about the people he has chosen, well, then what confidence do you have? What hope do you have? No, you want a God who is completely faithful and gracious to Israel. And you want a God who is so sovereign that he can accomplish the restoration of Israel because he's promised that to him over and over and over again in the Old Testament. And Paul certainly verifies it in Romans 9, 10, and 11. This future for Israel 
despite their punishment, despite their scattering, despite what God is going to do to correct them, it is also that same God who is going to take out their stony heart, give them a heart of flesh. It's that same God who is going to cause them to repent and weep. He's going to put his Holy Spirit in them. He is going to make them his people. He is going to be their God. He is not going to lose his people. Otherwise, he is a God who loses. He's a God who can be defeated who can say, I'm going to do stuff and then not do it. You don't want that God. And that, by the way, is not the God of the Bible. If the God of the Bible ever said, you're mine, you're his. And it's really good to know that as lousy as you might be, as rebellious and bad as you might be, If you ever wake up one day and realize how far you have wandered and you think, wow, I thought I was a Christian. How could I possibly do this? How could I be like this? It's really good to remember what he did for Israel, how he will not lose his people. He will correct them, but he will not utterly destroy them. Then he says to his church that we're not appointed to his wrath. It's very consistent, God. And I really, really like that God. For thus says the Lord, verse 27, the whole land shall be a desolation, yet I will not execute a complete destruction. For this the earth shall mourn, and the heavens above shall be dark, because I have spoken, I have purposed it, And I will not change my mind, nor will I turn away from it. At the sound of the horseman and the bowman, every city flees. They go into the thickets and they climb among the rocks. Every city is forsaken and no man dwells in them. Now God is explaining what he said rather allegorically at the beginning or starting at verse 23, where he said, I looked on the earth, it was formless and void. To the heavens, they had no light. I looked to the mountains, behold, they were quaking. I looked and behold, there was no man. All the birds of the heavens had fled. I looked and behold, the fruitful land was a wilderness. Now God is explaining that that is going to happen and that the sound of the horseman and the sound of the bowman Because of that, every city is going to flee, and they're going to go to the thickets and climb among the rocks, and every city is going to be forsaken, and no man dwells in them. And you, O desolate one, he's now speaking to the city of Jerusalem, calling them collectively the desolate one, very much like Jesus speaking to the city and saying, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you that kill the prophets, how often I would have gathered your children like a mother hen gathers her chicks, but you would not. God's doing the same thing here, speaking to Jerusalem. And you, O desolate one, what will you do? Although you dress yourself up, this is again God returning to that theme of you make a harlot of yourself. You go out and make yourself look good for your lovers. Although you dress in scarlet, although you decorate yourself with ornaments of gold, although you enlarge your eyes with paint, in vain you make yourself beautiful. Your lovers will despise you, and they will seek your life. 
For I heard a cry as of a woman in labor. This language is going to sound really familiar to you. We've seen it a couple times in the New Testament. Jesus used this language to describe a time of trouble such as never was or ever would be again. The book of Revelation uses this language in order to describe the kind of anguish that people are going to be in. They're going to look like a woman in labor. And in their pain, they're going to clutch their sides and bend forward. For I heard a cry as of a woman in labor, the anguish as of one giving birth to her first child, the cry of the daughter of Zion gasping for breath, (coughs) stretching out her hands and saying, Oh, woe is me, for I faint before my murderers. Really, really bleak language that God uses to describe what's coming. And he's not done yet. He still has another couple chapters of explaining the impending destruction of Jerusalem. There is no question that he is describing the Babylonian captivity. There is no question that he described it before it actually occurred, proving that the Bible, again, is accurate in its prophetic language. And there is no question at the same time, as often as God says to them, you are guilty, you are a harlot, you are rebellious, you don't know how to do good. As often as he says that to them, he also says, but because of my grace, I'm going to give you the opportunity to repent. And then I'm going to change you. Wait till we get to Jeremiah 31 and the promise of the new covenant. And how I'm going to put my spirit inside you. How I'm going to Put my law inside your hearts. I mean, the promise of God is I'm going to punish you and I'm going to punish you severely and I'm going to scatter you and I'm going to take you through this. But 70 years, I'm only going to do it for 70 years. Then I'm going to bring you back here. I'm going to put you in this land again. And then you're going to build the temple again. And then we read Ezekiel, who's then going to predict the temple and the rebuilding of the temple and the ultimate temple to be rebuilt. There's just all this phenomenal sovereignty throughout this section of Jeremiah because God in his sovereignty is saying, I will punish you and your city will be a complete destruction and I will reestablish you. Remember at the beginning of Jeremiah, he was told, that he was going to dig up and he was going to knock down and he was going to predict these terrible things, but he was also going to build and he was also going to plant. He was also going to predict the rebuilding of Jerusalem and the ultimate restoration of Jerusalem. So I'm amazed at Jeremiah. It's one of the reasons that I have wanted for so long to get to this book because you see things like this. The demonstration that the word of God is true even in secular history, but you also see the grace of God just looming so very large in front of very, very guilty people. And God knows how guilty they are and he can describe their guilt and he repeatedly tells them exactly what they're doing wrong and why he's going to punish them so that they will know that he's the one that is punishing them. But then he also gives them astounding promises of restoration by his grace and how he in his sovereignty is going to do for them what they simply cannot do for themselves. And I love that God because mm-hmm. I can apply all of those lessons to me. And I think you can apply them to you. And they're really valuable lessons.
So there. Questions? That's the summation. <laughs> yeah. yeah, the summation here is, so there. It's just great, great stuff. God is not going to make an utter destruction of Jerusalem because he said, I chose you. He's not going to make an utter destruction of you because he said, I chose you. That's the same God all the way through. Amazing grace. Do you feel good about the God you worship? Yes. He certainly has left himself a very consistent testimony. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace midweek message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding archive of audio sermons. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.